you haven't been with us in a couple of weeks or a while, we've just started uh, a new sermon series based on the letters of the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples and one of the pioneers of the early church. We've just looked at the first 12 verses of this letter, and in these first 12 verses, Peter interestingly has given us no orders, no corrections, and no appeals. Instead, his opening words to a church under fire, a community subject to alienation and persecution in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, his opening words to a church under fire is to rejoice in the blessings of salvation. As we discovered specifically last week, the beginning, who we are in Christ, and the end, what we have received from Jesus, these two fixed points of our journey of faith are stable and secure. And because they're fixed, stable, and secure, we can endure and even be joyful about whatever lies between, in between, whether it's temptation or trial. No matter how crazy, no matter how bad, how intense the middle gets, it doesn't change the beginning and it doesn't affect the end of what God our Father has done and will do for us. When our joy is not contingent upon our circumstances, but is directed towards our relationship to Jesus, our perspective shifts. And we can live, truly live and breathe and build hope fueled by the resurrection power of Christ. We come to the conclusion of chapter one, the conclusion of Peter's introduction this morning. And he's about to give us his first word of instruction. He's going to begin to direct us in terms of translating the gospel, the good news we've received thanks to Jesus, into the fabric the practical working of our everyday lives. Our college ministries director, Lisa Berry, is going to come forward and she's going to read to us through the remainder of chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Let's tune our ears to the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hmm? I'm reading from First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, and it's page 850 in your pew Bible. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought for you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from empty way of life handed to you from your ancestors, but with the precious bread of, blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've born, been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and in all their glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open. Do not close them. Because as you can see where Lisa started out, this next section, this next portion of the letter begins with a therefore. A therefore. For this reason, a dramatic pause, a hinge, a bridge to what comes next. Peter is building upon something he's already shared with us. Therefore looks back on something that's already been said. And what do we find when we look back into what Peter has already said? For those of you who are English majors, are English teachers, or just have a love for the English language, today is your lucky day. Because I am going to answer that question by getting grammatical on you. Yes. What do we look back when we see what Peter has already said? We find a bunch of indicatives. Now, if you don't remember this from English class, the indicative mood sets forth a statement of fact. The indicative mood sets forth a, forth a statement of fact. This is the way things are. In the first 12 verses of this letter, if you have those, your Bibles open, you can see this. Peter outlines, as he outlines the heart of the gospel, Peter lays out our present reality as followers of Jesus. He indicates who we are, what we have in Christ. And once again, it's so good, who are we? 
Though we may find ourselves, Peter says, as exiles in the world, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We have been chosen. That's who we are. And what do we have in Christ? Peter says we've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what we have. We have, Peter writes, an inheritance of salvation that will not perish, spoil, or fade. It is being kept in heaven for us, and it is shielded by God's power. That is what we have been given. This is who we are in Christ. This is what we have been given by Jesus. And verses 13 through 25 are all about our response to what Peter has shared with us. Back to grammar again. Peter's indicatives are going to be followed by his imperatives, his commands, the basic imperatives of what it means to follow Jesus. This is who you are. This is what you have. This is what you've been given. Therefore, for this reason, now go and live like this. Reflect your identity through your obedience as God's children, he will write, not the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Act out of the security and stability of your inheritance, your salvation, not the empty way of your former life. My friends, we're going to stop here for a second because Peter is teaching us something very, very important. He is teaching us the rhythm the flow of grace. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to understanding our relationship to and our responsibility before God, the imperatives always follow the indicatives. The commands, the expectations, what we do, how we live and act always follow from what God has done, from what God has given us. We can see this outside of Peter, so you can see this is biblical. Think about something we all memorize perhaps as kids. We all know the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have this structure. The indicative leads the way. The Ten Commandments start how? By saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Once again, the indicative sets forth what God has done in redemption. The imperatives, the commandments, that follow, call forth our response to God's gracious acts in history. It's a reflection of what gracious living looks like. Our actions, our behaviors are based on, come out of what is already sure and steady. What is already true and accomplished for us by God. That's the order, the rhythm of grace. We are God's children, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, empowered and secured by an inheritance of salvation. We have been given and cannot be taken away from us or bankrupted by us. Since this is who we are in Christ, Peter writes, since this is what we have been given, Peter writes, act like it. Act like it. Act like what? That's what we're going to look at the remainder of this morning. But with the, the way I want you to kind of see it, I think it works to get this, this flow, this rhythm of grace. We have an expression in our own times. We say, something, we say something like this. We say, like father, like son, right? Like the father is, so the son should be because of that relationship. And it actually has an even deeper meaning when we apply it to what Peter is trying to reveal to us today. Like father, like son, like us. Like father, like son, like us. Peter gives us four imperatives, four basic imperatives of following Jesus, of living life like a follower of Christ. And if you have your Bibles open, you can might even underline them. Here they are. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that has been revealed. Number one. Number two, therefore be holy in all you do. Number three, therefore live out your time here in reverent fear. Number four, therefore, love one another deeply from the heart. Four imperatives. And we're going to look at each one briefly. Setting one's hope on grace. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that's been revealed. 
But what Peter's appealing to is not some kind of idle wishfulness or some starry-eyed optimism when he says, set your hope on the grace. Peter is, goes on to, to write or writes beforehand with minds that are alert and fully sober. Set your hope. With minds that are fully alert and sober. Literally what Peter writes in the Greek is, gird up the loins of your minds. Back in the time when Peter wrote a letter like this, men wore a different fashion than they do today. Men wore long tunics that reached all the way down to their ankles. And as you can imagine, it was not the best clothing for sudden activity or heavy labor. When there was work to do or when one needed to be ready for action, a man would fold and tuck his skirt into the tunic of his belt, of his tunic into his belt. This was called girding up your loins. It indicated you were about to get ready, to get active. Peter is telling us Following Jesus is about focus and preparedness. We might say it this way, look alive, look alive, we like to say, meaning stay alert and responsive. And it's a word that isn't just relevant back in Peter's day, it's a word still relevant for us today because we have a tendency as human beings, we have a tendency towards semi-consciousness. You know what I mean? We're present but we're not totally there. You ever had that experience? You know, you're physically present, but you're not totally there. Maybe you've had that experience with someone you're with where they're with you, but they're not totally there. It's kind of like a default we, are, we enter into. And it's only become amplified as history has gone on. We live at a time where we pride ourselves, we're, we celebrate. It's one of the selling points of, of our, our progress and improvement that we multitask. Right? That we can multitask. You remember the time when there used to be the joke, the thing you used to say to a kid, can you walk and chew gum at the same time? That's like passe now, because now we can do like six or seven things all at once. We think it's fantastic. We can multitask. But we all know that the other side of multitasking, the downside of multitasking, is we're never entirely committed to one thing. Do you miss those days? Do you find yourself ever sitting with someone with other people and someone maybe even finally bursts out and says, can you put away that phone? Can you turn off the TV? Can you give me your full attention? Can I know that you're completely engaged right now? And this isn't just a thing in our time. It goes, Peter's writing this way, way back before we have multitasking. Because it's, a, it's human nature it's the brokenness of our human nature that we're easily distracted, aren't we? We're easily distracted. We check out without, with it, by the drop of a hat. I probably lost some of you already. You're gone. We check out easy. It's easy for us to indulge in fantasy rather than deal with reality. And many of us live in fantasy rather than deal with reality. We don't want clarity. And it's something that occurs not just in young people, but it occurs even as we get older. And it's disturbing to me. And this is my little soapbox moment. I, I believe out of my faith, out of the kind of things that Peter's writing here, that we're called to be focused, prepared. And yet sometimes when I get in conversations with people, I'm disappointed, I'm frustrated on what I perceive as a lack of self-reflection. When, when people, I'll, I'll, I'll ask follow-up questions. Well, why do you feel that way? Or what's going on with that? And people go, I don't know why I feel that way. I just do. Why do you do I just do it. What are you asking me that for? Kairos card. I got stuff going on. I'm just, I just do. We, we, we lack that self-reflection. And, and even in our world, you know, I encounter, I encounter people and, and want to talk about what's happening around us. What do you make of this Ebola crisis? What do you make of what's going on in the Ukraine? What do you make about what's going on with Israel and Palestine? What do you make about all these different events that we see? And I, I can't tell you how many people I encounter who go, I didn't even know what was going on. And then, why do I care? What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with me? Peter is calling us to roll up the sleeves of our minds and to be prepared and to be ready to engage this world hopefully. Set our minds on the hope of the grace we've been given because we've been called, we've been chosen. This is who we are, this is what we've been given so that we can speak words of grace to a world hell-bent on destruction. Why do you care? What has it got to do with you? Because you're in this world. You're a part of this world because you are chosen and called. You've been empowered to speak words of hope, words of grace to a world hell-bent on destruction. You have been chosen. You have been empowered. I have. We have together to speak words of grace, to speak words of hope to people around us who choose to live comfortably numb. 
Now, here's the thing, though, because some of us are getting fired up. Yes, truth. Let's start talking about truth. Let's lay it out there. Let's bring it down. Let's let people know what's wrong and what's right. Let's let people know how they need Jesus. But very important, you see with Peter, truth comes through grace. Once again, back to grammar, our imperatives come through our indicatives. We got a bad rap as a church, and it's for a good reason. Because our tendency is we are, we are well-practiced at telling people what to do. We have a great, we're good at telling people what to do. We're good at telling, listening to people how wrong they are and what they need to get right. But Peter says, truth comes through grace. The imperatives come through our indicatives that the way in which we set our minds on the hope of the grace that's being revealed in Christ is instead of telling people what to do, instead of listing how wrong they are, we're called to share who they are in Christ. What God has done for them as God has done for us all in Christ. And we share this by showing them by what we're doing, by how we're living, hopefully out of that grace. You know, if you look at it, for Peter, the best indicator of living hopefully that we're set on the grace that is before us, Peter puts it right out there. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it. Peter says, the best indicator of living hopefully set on this grace that is ours in Christ is our desires change. We no longer, he writes, live in ignorance. We live out of obedience. It's a very significant thing. It's one thing when you don't know, when you're ignorant because you don't know better. But it is a far different thing when you know and you choose to act like you don't know. And that's what Peter's saying is we know. We're not ignorant. Therefore, we can't live in ignorance. We live out of obedience. And when Peter speaks of us, he writes of us being obedient children. He isn't commanding us to be obedient as much as he foresees our obedience as a posture as a behavior that naturally, obviously flows out of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. If this is who we are, children of our Father, if we really get that, of course we follow our dad's lead. If this is what we have been given, union with the Son's victory over sin and death, of course we follow Jesus. Why would you follow anyone else? And that's why Peter's next imperative, number two, flows right out of the first. As he goes on to say, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. What does it mean to be holy? We see this word a lot in Scripture. We've interacted with it on Sunday. Standard understanding of holiness, of being holy, is to be set apart. That holy is special. That holy means to be pure or perfect. And that's true. Those are all right in the, in, the, in the ballpark. But Peter's usage of the word holy, and he'll continue to use it in this letter, helps us flesh out an even, an even deeper insight of what holy means. The way that Peter expresses it here, holy is conforming one's thinking and behavior to God's character. It's conforming one's thinking and behavior to God's character. You see, Peter emphasizes the relationship. Being holy is living out of our call, our identity as God's children. Being holy is reflecting and representing the heart, the grace, the love, the glory of God. When we're holy as God is holy, we're not making a name for ourselves. We're not being holier than now. We're living into, we're living out of, we're living up to the family name. This is radical for many of us because for many of us, we've grown up or we still associate holy. We think holy, holy is about a list of to-dos and not to-dos. When we think holy, we think of the Ten Commandments. But did you ever stop and realize the disconnect if that's what, what we think holy is in light of what Peter's saying? If we define holiness in this way, a list of to-dos and not to-dos, if this is what holiness is, then we're never going to be holy. I mean, one of the, the, so you can appreciate the tension, one of the foundational premises of our faith, why we're here, is that we profess we need Jesus because we can't live up to the expectations of the law. You ever played around? I mean, have you ever stopped and asked yourself, you know, and whatever, whatever knowledge you have of this faith that we have, have you ever stopped and asked yourself, if the law can't save us, if we can't live up to God's top ten, why did God give us the law in the first place? Now, some of you are well-practiced Lutherans, and you know law and gospel, and, and a default place we go to as well. The reason why God gives us the law is so we can just see how bad we are. 
just how much we need grace. And amen, that's true. But don't stop there. Because it's much deeper than that. It's, it's much deeper than that. The Ten Commandments is more than a list of do's and don'ts. The Ten Commandments is more than a mirror that says, this is just how messed up you are. The Ten Commandments reflect God's character. The Ten Commandments reflect God's design for the world. The Ten Commandments reflect how God would live in the world he created. And to put some things together, this is why we're told the law points to Christ. This is why we understand and we say Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Jesus fulfills the law because he perfectly reflects the Father. Because he is God. Once again, like Father, like Son. You're still not getting it. And, and again, it's a, it's a tough one because for many of us, regardless of what we live with, this sort of ambivalent faith, because some of us, despite talking about grace, despite talking about the things that Peter talks about in the first 12 verses, many of us are functionally living a religion primarily understood as rules and regulations. Many of us are still living a religion primarily understood as rules and regulations rather than living what Peter is pointing us to, a relationship based upon being children of a father who is also the king. The Ten Commandments are not about proving ourselves or earning a gold star. The Ten Commandments are not just about saying how bad we are, how just messed up we are. The Ten Commandments are our lens for relating to the world, for relating to our Father's world. They are our lens for representing his character accurately. In other words, the Ten Commandments are less about meeting a perfect standard and more about reflecting a perfect God. We don't follow the letter of the law to become holy. We reflect the spirit of the law because we have been made holy in Christ. As if to drive this home, I love this, in the midst of writing this letter, as if to drive this home, if you have those Bibles open, in the midst of trying to drive home how precious we are, how sacred is the gift we, are, we have been given, in the midst of all of his commands, Peter throws in a couple more indicatives for us. He writes, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Peter invokes the language of ransom and redemption from Greco-Roman culture here. A Greco-Roman slave, one way that they could be ransomed or redeemed was a slave would receive his or her freedom after depositing money in the temple of a god or goddess. The money was paid via the temple treasury, minus a slight commission, to the slave's owner. The idea being the god or goddess was buying the slave. In the eyes of the owner and society, the person was free yet indebted to that god or goddess. And Peter, utilizing this visual image, is saying Christ has paid the price to set us free. He has paid the price to set us free from ignorance, as he writes, from evil desires, from an empty way of life, slavery. And yet he also incorporates in this image another image. He uses the sacrificial language of the Old Testament, describing the, Jesus as the flawless, innocent lamb who takes away, who covers the sins of the world. Peter is doing this. He's putting these two images together to emphasize the great cost by which we have been redeemed. Not with things that are perishable. If I dropped silver and gold in your lap this morning, you would all be very, very happy. Silver and gold st still carries weight and value. Wow in our lives. But Peter says, you, the cost, what was paid for you is more than silver and gold, which is perishable. We have been redeemed, not with things that perish, but Peter writes, we've been redeemed through the eternal, the resurrected, glorified life of God, freely given for ours. Let that sink in for a second. We have been redeemed, ransomed by the eternal, 
resurrected, glorified life of God freely given for ours. God in Christ gives us everything we need, all we cannot earn or deserve. The Lord withholds nothing, so Peter writes, our faith and our hope are in God. Beloved, we don't follow the letter of the law to become holy. We reflect the spirit of the law because we have been made holy in Christ. And because of this, because we have been and are being made holy at such great eternal cost solely by God's grace, Peter reminds us of this third imperative to live out our time here in reverent fear. Command number three. And this one's interesting because we don't talk a lot about fear in the church in this way. John, a couple months ago, preached a great sermon on fear. But fear comes up a lot in the Bible, but it's different than the fear that we understand in our day-to-day lives. Peter, first, though, makes it plain. It's right there in front of you. It might just pop off the page. God holds us accountable, Peter says. God holds us accountable. We call on a father, he writes, who judges each person's work impartially. Whoa, 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 whoa. What about this whole we've been chosen, inheritance, and grace thing? What did judge? What? I thought that was the whole point. I thought that was the whole idea. We're not going to be judged by God. Read carefully. Read carefully. Pay attention to what Peter says here. What is at stake, Peter writes, when God judges us is not our eternal destiny. It's not our relationship with him. God is our father. We are his children. Our salvation, our inheritance is in Christ. This is secure. But make no mistake, Peter goes on, God judges us Why? How? According to our work. Please hear this. This is so subtle but important. Judgment comes after grace. Judgment comes after grace, not before. We're not proving ourselves. We're not earning anything. This isn't a bait and switch. It's all about who we are and what we have been given. However, God judges us He makes us give an account for how we've lived out of our identity, what we've done with what we've been given. And Peter says our Father does so impartially. He is penetrating and honest. There's no favoritism when he judges. Therefore, Peter says, live in reverent fear in the time you have here. The fear of God that Peter is invoking is not about dread or anxiety. And yet, when we talk about the fear of God, that's how many of us live with this sense of dread or anxiety about God. Peter's not talking about a fear that provokes dread or anxiety. He's talking about a fear, the kind of fear that's a healthy response, that's a a, a posture of maturity and respect when you stand before an altogether different kind of being. When you consider the great cost that has been paid to bring you into this world, And take you into the next. Maybe we could put it this way. Father is a relational term of intimacy and love. But father is also a relational term that implies respect and submission. Some of us are parents. Some of us are children. Some of us have been are both. Have you ever had that experience for those of us who are parents of at times feeling as though you're not being appreciated, feeling as though you're being taken for granted. And, and when that happens, you're loath to say anything about it. You, you, you don't ever want to do it, and yet at some point you finally maybe burst out and you say something like, do you understand the sacrifices that were made? Do you understand the cost that had to be paid to get this for you, to get you where you are? I can't say this as a man, but for the females, the moms, they can say, do you know how long I was in labor for you? We don't, like, we don't like to say that. We don't like to talk about it because, again, we don't want to say it as a way of piling on the guilt. We don't want the response to come out of guilt. We don't want someone to suddenly do something because they're being guilted into do it. We hesitate to say it, but we finally say it because the point is we want people to truly see and embrace the love that they've been given, to live out of the freedom that they've been given. We want them to respond with a sense of respect. It's not, and again, we're human, so there's a part of it that's about our ego, but it's more about, do you understand? I didn't want you to live the life that I had to live. I didn't want you to have to deal with the things I had to deal with. This is the price I paid, the cost I did. And it's not about giving credit back to me. It's not like we sat there with everything we did and said, oh man, I can just add it to the list. Man, I'm gonna hang this over their head. No, we didn't do that. We did it because we wanted our children 
to have it better, to be free. And it's no different for God. It's not that God's got some bruised ego, but God wants us to live out of the freedom, to live out of the miracle that he's given us in our lives and he continues to put before us. How do we think about our Heavenly Father? The word judgment comes up, and in my circles, we all get hot and bothered at God's judgment. Judgment? Oh, bait and switch. Knew it wasn't just grace. Who does he think he is anyway, judging us? And what Peter's trying to do is get us to change our thinking. What he's laid out in the first 12 verses and what he puts together here is, and try to follow this. Peter's trying to lay out, do you understand who you are? Do you understand what you've been given? Peter is saying, our greatest fear has been removed. God's judgment will not go against us. We have been bought back at great cost. If we truly wrestle with the reality of this gift, our humility, our respect, our awe will follow. How can we not live differently? Do you understand? Do you understand what God has done for us? Do you really let it sink in? Do you set your mind on it? Do you reflect it? Is Jesus the center of your universe? Is that too simple of a question? Is Jesus the center of your universe? And if Jesus isn't the center of the universe in light of what we believe, isn't that a problem? Isn't something off? Do we fear God reverently? Oswald Chambers, some of you may have heard of him, great author, he once described, I think he described it best when he wrote these words. I think he's getting at what Peter's talking about when he says, live with reverent fear in the time that we have. Oswald Chambers wrote this. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. But when you don't fear God, you fear everything else. I think that just nails it. My friends, in the last century, many of us have been a part of that. The church has put a lot of emphasis on making a decision for Christ, on making a decision to become a Christian, and that is important. But as I've mentioned before, and it bears repeating again, unfortunately, we have tended to put so much of an emphasis on this decision that more than a few of us think that being a Christian ends with a decision and an agreement with a set of propositions. For Peter, what he's saying in this first chapter, and he's going to unpack even more for us, for Peter, the gospel is so much more than a one-time decision. The gospel is so much more than a part of our lives. The gospel is so much more than one of those things we build our lives around. For Peter, the gospel is life. Our orientation to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for Peter is the most important relationship we have. My friends, we don't build our lives around the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our lives from within. Are you building your life around the gospel? Or is your life being transformed from within? Because the gospel is inside of you. The sanctifying work of the Spirit, the holiness of this God is inside of you. It is a dramatically different experience. For Peter, the question isn't, have you made a decision for Jesus? I'm not saying that's not important. For, for, for Peter, that's not the question. The question isn't, have you made a decision for Jesus? The question is, are you living with God? Are you living out of who you are in Christ, what you have been given, the hope we have in Christ, our reflection of our Father's holiness, his character, as well as our humble awareness of our accountability before the Lord, for Peter is expressed day by day through this final imperative. It is expressed through our love for each other. As Peter expresses it, this love that comes deeply from the heart. Peter stresses the purity, the sincerity of the love we have been given in Christ as the source of the love we have towards each other. We are to love deeply. I love that. We are to love deeply. Our love is to plumb the depths and duration of the love of Christ. My friends, the best and most effective preaching of the gospel is loving others like God loves us in Christ. I cannot tell you I've said it to myself, I've had it said unto me. How many people, we're still saying it, I don't know enough, 
I haven't read the Bible enough. I haven't been in the church long enough. I haven't gone through this. I can't share the gospel. I can't preach the gospel. Hogwash, bogus, lies. It's important. It means something. It's valuable. It's helpful. But hear it. The most effective preaching of the gospel is loving others like God loves us in Christ. Peter is simply repeating what Jesus says to his own disciples before he goes to the cross. You don't need another Bible study. Not to say you shouldn't partake in one. You don't need to go to church for a couple more years. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to share the gospel. If you are experiencing the love of God in your life through Christ, you will preach the gospel by sharing that love in how you love others. How does Jesus love us? This is review. Jesus loves us by reaching out to us. Not from a distance. Jesus loves us in person and up close. How does Jesus love us? By giving us the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes people just want something small in a sermon. So here it is. Do you think about this, about the love of Christ? Jesus gives us the benefit of the doubt. That's his love for us. Do you give the people in your life the benefit of the doubt? God, who more than anyone else has a reason to not give us the benefit of the doubt, in his love gives us the benefit of the doubt. Are you loving people deeply the way Christ has loved you? Do you give them the benefit of the doubt? God loves us in understanding us even when we don't understand ourselves. Are you fixated on being understood first? Or do you seek to understand someone else first? God understood us before we could ever understand him. My friends, when we love like Jesus, we're preaching the gospel of Christ. When the power of our love comes from Jesus, we are pointing to the authority of Christ. So many people are getting hot and bothered that we're not giving authority to Christ. You want authority to Christ? You point to the authority of Christ by loving like Jesus does. I guarantee you the authority of Christ will become shining through your life. It's not about your arguments. It's not about your rants. It's not about your scriptures. It's about your love. If you love the way Christ's love, then trust me, people will see the authority of Christ. They will not be able to miss it. It will knock them over. The deep, deep love of Jesus that we sing about is more than wearing a cross. It's practicing the sacrificial love of the cross. Our responsibility is not just to ask someone if they've been saved by the love of Jesus that never fails. Our responsibility is to save that person by loving them without fail, like Jesus. Probably all have seen this commercial. It's really annoying. Capital One, you know, with a different pitch person, they change somebody every couple of months, comes out and tells you, this is what's so awesome about this card. This is all the things this card will do to change your life. This is why you need this card. And then, the, you know, the tagline, right? What's in your wallet? If you will, Peter in the first chapter is doing a much deeper and much more profound version of that commercial. This is who you are. This is what you've been given. This is what you have. What's in your heart? What's in your heart? What are you setting your mind on? What are you reflecting through your life? What are you reverently fearful of? Where is your love? What's in your heart? Is it our love of Jesus, the love of Jesus, or the love of this world? You see, there's a difference. The love of this world, we all know because we live in this world, the love of this world is conditional. The love of this world is self-serving. The love of this world is fickle. I love you when you do what I want you to do. I love you when I'm getting from you what I need, self-serving. When you're not doing it for me anymore, when you're not giving me what I need, the, my love wanes, fickle. My love is conditional, but the love of Jesus is unconditional. No strings attached. I love you. The love of Jesus, as the scriptures talk about, is immeasurable. There is nothing I hold back. The cross reminds us again and again, God gives us everything, everything. And the best, the love of Christ is different from the world as Romans. Paul tells us in the letter of the Romans because the love of Christ is unconquerable. What do you got? Bring it. Not gonna change a thing. What do you got? Death? What do you, you gonna mess up? What do you got? Nothing will conquer my love for you. Nothing will eradicate my love for you. Are we loving like Jesus or are we loving like the world? Is our love conditional 
self-serving and fickle, or is our love unconditional, immeasurable, and unconquerable? The love of this world, if we operate according to the love of this world, we're attracted to good-looking people, to like-minded people, agreeable people. I love people who look good to me. I love people who think like I do, because they think like I do. I love people who are agreeable I can get along with. If I can have a good time with them, I can love them. The love of Jesus is dramatically different. The love of Jesus attracts us to invisible or embarrassing people. The love of Jesus attracts us to polar opposites, to people we might even call our enemies. The love of Jesus draws us to disagreeable people, messy people, snarky people, whiny people, people just like us. What's in your heart? Is it the love of Jesus or is it love the way the world works? Peter gives us four basic imperatives for following Jesus, of living life like a follower of Christ. If you missed them, here they are. Set our hope, your hope, fully on the grace that's been revealed. Be holy in all that you do. Live out your time here in reverent fear and love one another deeply from the heart. It is so easy for us, and I'm so afraid that so many of us today are going to hear this as a checklist, as a series of things we have to do. But again, I know I'm beating this into the ground, but it's so important. Each of these imperatives is grounded in the indicative. Each of these commands is rooted in who we are in Christ and what we have received from Jesus. If we get this order wrong, we will be living backwards, using the imperatives, the commands of God as a way of defining our indicatives, who we are and what we have. We will work out of our pride by our own standards of goodness and success, our own standards of productivity, or we'll work in fear, trying to earn, buy, bargain, or steal our way into God's good graces. But both paths will make us frustrated and insecure because both paths lead to nowhere. You know, one of the hardest things about preaching is when the word is coming to you. It always comes to me, but when the word is, hey, you're going to preach this, but you know, it might be a really good idea if you actually submitted to this word. I prefer the ones where I'm like, oh, yeah, versus the ones where God's like, okay, this is what I want you to say, but I dare you to say it without actually living it. I, I want to give you an example of living life backwards of putting the imperatives before the indicatives. I want to give you an example, as many of us do if you're like me, of being a human doing rather than a human being. When I am trying to make the commands of God that be the driving force of my life as a way of defining who I am and what I have in Christ, what ends up happening is I set my hope not on God's grace but on my graciousness. I define holiness by my parameters for the sacred, what I define as sacred rather than God's presence. I live in fear. I have to confess that. I live in fear, fear not of God, but fear of failure. That if I fail, I'm not good enough. If I fail, I'm not called. And I struggle with loving superficially. I love you if you do what I want. I love you if you show up. And that kind of superficial love keeps me on this continuum. Maybe you get this, maybe you don't. I'm on this continuum in this superficial love of anger and resentment towards you and failure and defeat about me. And I have to tell you, in preparing for this message, I was, that is the, the, <laughs> the place that I was living, those commandments driving my indicatives, my understanding of who I am and what I have been given. I don't want to get into particulars because I think that will distract you from the point. Many things that I was about, that I believed I had to do, that I believed needed to take place, that were I, 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 and they weren't happening. It was a big thud, smack, and I was mad, and I'm ticked. And I'm frustrated and I'm afraid and I'm just in this place that I just described to you. And in the midst of all of it, something happened. A moment took place. A moment that I, I'm going to tell you I overlooked at first. It was a moment that was unplanned. A moment for which I was unprepared, at least by my standards. 
In the midst of all this, this mess going in in the life of Chris, I'm at the school one day, and I'm at the school one day in the midst of my frustration, and my, my thoughts are just, I'm setting my hope on all the stuff that I thought was going to happen, and what am I going to do, and all this stuff. And in the midst of just being there, this moment happens where I'm, I, I've been in a classroom, and as I leave, the third grade teacher runs out and grabs me and says, she's new, she's just been hired, doesn't even know me, we haven't gotten to know each other. Will you please pray with one of my students. She just lost her grandparent and she came in crying. Will you pray with her? Sure. Yeah, that's, that's what I do. Yeah. And this little girl comes out and we sit on the bench outside the classroom. She sits. I'm like, you know. And we talked. And we cried. If you don't remember, I lost my grandfather this year. I showed her a picture on my phone and we shared stories. We laughed. We prayed. And again, I have to tell you this story a little bit out of order. I went about my day. I went back to my grousing. I went back to my, all those things that I said, my commands, driving my who I am, what I've been, what I, what I, what I've, what I have received. And then it was a week later, this week, in the midst of this sermon, in the midst of the tension of, I can't preach this message because I'm not really living this. I don't know what this looks like. I can say it to you, but I don't know what it looks like because I'm kicking up against it. And while I was sitting here just basically dreading preaching this sermon because I know what I'm supposed to say, but how do I say it if I, I don't know what it looks like? I'm at the school. I'm just hanging out with kids. And all of a sudden, that third grade girl comes running across the way from the playground and just grabs me and hugs me and pulls out a picture of her grandfather and says, see, I want to show you. I nearly missed it. I was there. I was so caught up in trying to fulfill commands, to feel secure, to be righteous. I almost missed it. But God took his indicatives and smacked them right in the midst of my imperatives. How did that happen? How did that moment happen? How did I get to be a part of that? I, I wasn't prepared for it. I, I didn't know it was coming. I didn't get to think about what I was going to say. I didn't get to pull out my brilliant seminary education or my Bible to find those choice verses. How did that happen? How did it happen more than I just didn't, I didn't just, wasn't able to say something to this little girl, but that God was able to say something to me through her, that we were able to be connected even though I'm 44 and she's what, eight? What I missed that, that became so, it was like screaming when she came back, is that God had put hope in front of me. God had put holiness in front of me. God had given me something that made me reverently afraid in the best way possible. God had shown me deep, deep love. How did that happen? How was I a part of that? It wasn't by what I did. It wasn't by my training or my brilliance. How did it happen? Because I was present. Because despite myself, I was living out of the indicatives of who I am in Christ in what I have received and in living out of those indicatives, I fulfilled the imperatives. My friends, this is not an isolated story. Where are the moments in your life where you're so busy, whether they're the commands that you've created or the commands that you think God is cracking the whip on, that you are missing just the opportunity to live out of who you are and what you have been given. If you've never memorized scripture before, I want to encourage you to memorize the first chapter of 1 Peter. Start your day by saying the first 12 verses, reflecting back who you are and what you've been given in Christ, and then go out to meet your day, not as a checklist. You won't be able to do it. Everything else that Peter says, out of the truth, the assurance of that reality. You see, Without God's intervention left to ourselves, we live lives of separation from God and from one another. We live lives ignorant of how God views and acts in this world. We get so caught up in our own search for survival and significance, and we drown in either our successes or our failures. That's what I was doing even though I'm a believer. But when you really encounter Christ, when we really embrace Jesus, the person of Jesus, you can't live life the same anymore. When the character of God most profoundly witnessed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is why we keep talking about it and soaking in it, when it confronts us, we're changed. 
Our former ignorance with all its passions, our former life of only caring about what happens to you at this second fades away as a much less desirable way of living. Informed by Scripture and empowered by the Spirit, we begin to lose our grip on this world even as our hold on the world to come becomes tighter. I want more of those moments that I had with a third-grade girl. I want more of that. And the beautiful thing is God wants more of that for me and for you. When we fail, I fail. When we fail to keep, to honor these imperatives that that Peter is listing for us, we don't just try harder. That's what I was doing. I was trying harder. We don't just try harder. We go back to the indicatives of what God has done for us in Christ. We start by remembering who we are in Christ. We remember what is ours thanks to Jesus. We go back to the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the resurrection, what we've been given. You know what's amazing? is because I wasn't prepared, because I didn't have my scripted answers or whatever it is that I do, in that moment with that third grade girl, that's what I went to. Who I am, who she is, what we have in Christ. And it was more than enough. And that's why I say again to you, when someone in your life, and we all have this, when someone in your life, we're surrounded by people, so you gotta have somebody, probably more than one, when someone in your life is sinning, when they're messing up, when they're failing to live God's way, please, 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 don't just tell them what to do. Don't just tell them, send them out with more imperatives, go and do better. Send them to the indicatives. Share with them through your love who they are in Christ. Show them through your love what God has done, not only for them, but for us all. That's how we put the gospel into practice. It's the best way I can say it, by remembering to let the indicatives come before the imperatives. The indicatives are Father's declarations for us, lead us into the real imperatives of this life. What matters, what lasts, what best reflects the glory of our God. Hope, holiness, reverence, and love come forth in and through our lives, not because of what we do, but in response, flowing out of what God has done, is doing for us in Christ. Like Father, like Son, like us. That's the order. That's the rhythm of grace. We are God's children, beloved. Therefore, let us go and live as God's children. Let us share the inheritance of our salvation, the hope that is ours in Jesus, and in so doing, let's marvel as the world changes around us. Amen.